This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, will Donald Trump pardon Ivanka and Jared and Don Jr. and Eric? What exactly are their crimes? It sounds like another episode of The Children's Hour. For that, Amy Willens will report. Also, John Le Carre died on Saturday. He was 89 and one of the greats, author of two dozen books set in the Cold War and after. People called them spy novels, although they were much more than that. Ella Taylor will review the best of the movies and TV miniseries based on the books, especially Alec Guinness as George Smiley. But first, this week the U.S. began vaccinating people against COVID-19, and we consider proposals to establish a coronavirus commission empowered to investigate the many failures in the fight against COVID. Is that something progressives should fight for? For comment, we turn to Mike Davis, historian and activist, contributing editor at The Nation. And of course, he's the author of many books, including City of Quartz and most recently Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. I'm co-author on that one. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, when Obama took office... And progressives pushed for criminal prosecution of the mega bankers who were responsible for so much of the foreclosure crisis of 2008 and 2009. Obama declared that we should look forward, not backward. Remind us about how that worked in practice. Well, even before the uh, inauguration, Obama's transition team was working very closely with Paulson, the Secretary of Treasury. And they wanted continuity. They'd already decided that basically they would seek a Wall Street solution to Wall Street problems without punishment or any criminal investigation. But the mega bankers were arguably the biggest white collar criminals in American history. And Obama got punished two years later in the 2010 election with a massive Republican sweep in Congress. A lot of it motivated by the fact that uh, Obama seemed to be identified with with Wall Street, non-Main Street, or the 10 million people who uh, ultimately lost their homes during the uh, aftermath of 2008. Likewise, uh, the administration never addressed the question of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the lies, deceptions, and then the war crimes committed by the Bush administration. So this became a model of how to make peace with the previous administration and do business as usual. Now, Trump, of course, reversal. He immediately went on the attack, demanding investigations of Hillary Clinton, Obama, uh, everybody else. And there's still, of course, a special prosecutor in the Justice Department recently appointed to continue these investigations even under Biden. The big question for us is whether Biden is going to follow Obama's example of looking forward, not backward. What signs have you seen about that? Well, there's half a dozen press reports, starting with NBC interviewed some of Biden's top advisors. And uh, it's clear that Biden will avoid any confrontation with Trump about the issues raised in the impeachment or by other crimes and high misdemeanors during that that time. And this is in, in part because they know that the Republicans will retaliate and Republicans control the Senate. And I think the odds are still in their favor that they could stop any of the legislation that Biden wants to pass. This, however, is is an abdication, I think, of the highest moral order, particularly when it comes to the pandemic. Now, back in April, a group of Democrats, uh, led by Adam Schiff in the House, passed parallel resolutions in the House and Senate to uh, appoint a 9-11 type commission coronavirus. Now, at that time, it could be argued that 
everything that had happened so far was a result simply of monumental bureaucratic ineptitude, including the, you know, the lies that had been put out, the deliberate cover-up in several uh, cases, including the uh, telling the American people masks didn't work in, in the beginning. But after that point, from the summer onwards, the situation changed in a radical way because the White House became the principal vector of the pandemic. That is, Trump unleashed the alt-right against state houses uh, across the country. You remember, liberate Wisconsin, liberate Michigan, and started a crusade against masks and social distancing. This is something of an entirely different character from bureaucratic ineptitude. This is like the captain of a ship who on a clear day deliberately rams the ship, the passenger ship, into the rocks for the sake of covering uh, his own tracks. Would he be charged with mere incompetence? No. He wouldn't be charged with a, uh, a crime, attempted homicide, you know, at the at the very least. So this proposal that you've written about at thenation.com from Adam Schiff in the House, and I understand from Amy Klobuchar and Diane Feinstein in the Senate, it is to establish a national coronavirus commission. What exactly would this do and what would its charge be and what would its powers be? Well, in the original version of this, it would be an investigation, objectively, of the mistakes that were made, seeking to come up with a number of recommendations about how to fight the pandemic and other uh, disease outbreaks. But their version of it was uh, relatively toothless. In other words, it was intended to draw meaningful lessons not to finger point or not to punish, but it's absolutely essential that we finger point. If you agree that from the summer on, the White House engaged in a criminal activity against the American people, and there's also a need to finger point other instances. Right now, Mitch McConnell is holding out against any kind of relief bill unless it includes uh, absolutely sweeping five-year immunity from civil lawsuits and prosecution for hospitals and nursing homes. Nursing home industry preys off Medicaid and Medicare payments. And the Trump administration is very beginning after lobbying by the nursing home industry, uh, greatly reduced the fines that we would pay for uh, not having, for instance, any uh, antiviral, anti-infection training, and sanitary conditions. This is an absolutely piratical industry, and 100,000 Americans have died so far in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. These people should get immunity? Well, I did a little research. They've paid $15 million in fines so far, but they've gotten billions and billions of dollars of uh, relief uh, aid. 15 million across the whole industry is absolutely nothing. So such a commission has to not only investigate the White House and the administration, it has to look at things like the nursing home industry, insurance industry, and in some cases, it needs to look even at Democratic governors. Here in California, we have a governor who has been celebrated in the past for leading such a competent response to COVID-19. But in fact, his failures in terms of inspecting nursing homes, the outbreaks in the uh, California prison system, these should be the subject of investigation as well. And progressives, of course, should move in every way possible, try and push the progressives in Congress to pursue this. But if not, it should be taken out to, to the communities. Some kind of independent citizens commission with distinguished medical people and so on that would go to B 
beef packing plants in South Dakota that would go to uh, small Georgia towns that would, you know, go to urban uh, inner city communities where the ravages of, of the pandemic have been highest and ask the tough questions and above all, point the fingers. The last thing the world we should tolerate is a blanket amnesty that extends to the failures and crimes of the pandemic uh, response. And if Biden won't support that or his administration, then people should organize it themselves. And I'm sure there's a you know, massive base of support for such an investigation. And uh, in addition to the nursing homes, on a smaller scale, but even more hellish, has been the immigration detention centers, which are run by private prison companies. There's one here in, in Southern California, Adelanto, which I know something about because of the, the ACLU had to go to the courts and got the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to order the reduction in inmates at Adelanto private immigration detention center from 1,600 to 340 was actually the acceptable number. Uh, This is one of dozens of private immigration prisons are all over the United States. And it really, I mean, it's a great thing we have the ACLU going to court for this, but Really, it's kind of a crime that it's happening at all. And, you know, one of the last things Obama did before he left office was he said he was going to shut down the private immigration detention system and replace it with government-run institutions. We hope Biden will do that. Well, we you know forget that there is so much on the agenda, left on the agenda by Obama for Hillary Clinton. Another instance of this, is that if you look at nursing homes, the absolutely key thing is having adequate staff. And so Obama left a regulation for OSHA to enforce on minimum staffing levels, but the Republican-dominated Senate rejected it, and uh, we still don't have a law. It's absolutely you know essential. But that's why we need a comprehensive investigation with deep case studies of the instances like the private detention centers and nursing homes, the meatpacking industry. Also what's happened in Native American communities across the the country. I would just note that that the proposals to establish a national coronavirus commission coming from Adam Schiff is not a member of the squad with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Amy Klobuchar and Dianne Feinstein are not comrades of Bernie Sanders. These are the centrists in the party who are who had proposed this in, in the first place. I've been thinking about, well, what will the Trump people say about this? We actually know what Trump has said. At the final debate, Trump took a clear stand on the coronavirus response. Let me quote. I take full responsibility. It's not my fault. It's not my fault that it came here. It's China's fault. They kept it from going into the rest of China, but they didn't keep it from coming out into the world, including Europe and ourselves, close quote. So he's, he believes in finger pointing. I, I've noticed now that if you go on the net, you get these ads. I mean, these are recent ads uh, out of the Trump camp detailing uh, how it's not China that's done this. It's a Chinese Communist Party. And they give you this detailed list of, uh, you know, of false facts and and, uh, uh, conspiracies. And of course, they would fight back fiercely against any independent and comprehensive investigation, which is why it may be the case that the original April legislation has been left on the back burner. And really, the authors of it haven't talked much about it since then, because, you know, the Biden administration is terrified of, of what might ensue. But that should be no constraint on our conscience or on the resp- responsibility that we all have to the American people and, and, and the victims of this unnatural uh, disaster. On the list of things that such a commission or other undertaking should examine, 
the news in today from Los Angeles in LA County, Latino residents are becoming infected with the virus at more than double the rate of white residents. Well, I mean, there's two reasons for this. Uh, first of all, because Latinos, as well as African-Americans in other parts of the country, dominate the essential, low-wage essential workforce, and so have the highest uh, rates of exposure. They tend to live in multi-generation households, but they also have pre-existing conditions, often related to their occupation. There's a new study that's just come out that shows that one industri common industrial pollutant has been associated with massively higher rates of serious COVID infections and hospitalizations. I mean, this is the scientific dimension of any inquiry. Uh, it's not just individual pre-existing conditions, it's social pre-existing conditions in communities of color and in, you know, poor blue-collar neighborhoods and towns across uh, the city. But it's scandalous what's going on in California. But Newsom has never had his feet put close to the fire. And that obviously uh, is something we need to do in California is to hold him uh, responsible. Mike Davis wrote about creating a coronavirus commission for thenation.com. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Will Donald Trump pardon Ivanka and Jared and Don Jr. and Eric? What exactly are their crimes? It sounds like another episode of The Children's Hour. And so, of course, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent from for The New Yorker. She writes now for The New York Times, The LA Times, and The Atlantic. And she's best known, of course, for her work on Haiti. She's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, our national newspaper of record, The New York Times, recently had a headline, Trump has discussed pardons for his three eldest children. You have, over the past many months, described many of their offenses here. What's at the top of your list of their crimes? So these are my personal and idiosyncratic uh, crimes committed by Trump babies, um, including Jared. I just don't want to leave him off the list. And he was mentioned in this these discussions with his advisors. It's not just the blood children, but the law children. So first, on the very, very, very top of their offenses is just looking like that, the way they look. <laughs> so many of the, the photographs of them, they're just too scary. Okay. Another is bringing the wrong evangelical Bible to the photo op in front of the White House after they dispersed all the uh, protesters. That, that was, was the, the one, one with, with the, the purse. purse. The purse she bought a giant designer purse with the Bible in it because, of course, her fa father didn't happen to have one lying around the White House. <laughs> so she brought it from home in Calorama. Is that where she lives? And um, it was not the Bible for every evangelical. Let's put it that way. Uh, here's another one. This might be just my own personal thing, not supporting the Palestinian cause at all. This is a big one. Um, here's another one for uh, Eric and Don Jr., killing endangered species. Um, the, the whole Trump sort of extravaganza is about killing humans, but they also add endangered species to their list. And then for Ivanka taking large consulting payments from a company she works for that is called the Trump Organization. That's a big one. And I think that's on the one of the ones that's concerning uh, Papa Trump right now. Well, most of the news that we've read over the last few weeks has been about investigations in New York City by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance and in New York State by the State Attorney General Letitia James. 
Both of them are investigating the Trump Organization for Income Tax Avoidance Schemes. But, of course, the president cannot pardon anyone for state crimes, only for federal crimes. What exactly are the Trump kids' potential violations of federal criminal law? Okay, so in the case of Don Jr., uh, Robert Mueller's probe, which you may recall, was looking at questions of whether or not his contacts during the 2016 election with WikiLeaks and the Russians at the Russian meeting in Trump Tower offering dirt on Hillary Clinton amounted to campaign finance violations. Don Jr. was never interviewed by Mueller's office and he was never charged. That seems like a stretch to me to prosecute him for that. What about Jared? Well, we don't know what's a stretch or not. So we're thinking about all the things that could be in Trump's mind. But yeah, Jared. So in in his his thing is he omitted several significant contacts with foreigners when he filled out his form for the White House security clearance. Everybody who works in the White House has to get a clearance. Depending on what you do, you get a higher clearance or not. Um and he failed to mention those same Russians who were peddling the information on Hillary during the campaign. So uh, under federal law, it's a crime to provide inaccurate or incomplete information on these background check documents for clearances. And the reason why um, is if you omit them, then it's not clear that what you know might jeopardize national security. You might be the kind of person who leaks things to other people to other governments. That's why that's a crime. So in 2018, the White House Council and, and the Chief of Staff both recommended, and we reported on this in the Children's Hour, <laughs> that Jared not be given the kind of high-level top security clearance his position in the White House might be thought to deserve because of issues that had been discovered during the background check and because of the omissions on the statements. Nonetheless, Papa Trump unilaterally gave Jared top security clearance. And he has had that now uh, and until now, still has it. So again, this seems to me like a kind of a borderline thing, prosecute him despite the fact that he got the security clearance anyway. But what are the crimes of Ivanka? Ivanka actually has some things people are asking her about. Right? So she was questioned for more than five hours this week, or was it last week? It's last week. Yeah, she was questioned for more than five hours last week by investigators from the Washington, D.C. Attorney General's Office. Attorney General's Office has accused President Trump's inaugural committee of wasting donated money on an overpriced ballroom at the president's D.C. hotel. Um, the, the office revealed that it had taken Ivanka's deposition earlier in the week. And then Ivanka tweeted that, that they had questioned the rates charged by the, this is a quote, question the rates charged by the Trump Hotel at the inauguration in 2017. And then, like, as if Twitter were a court of law, she posted a letter that she'd sent, that she said she sent to Trump Hotel executives in December 2016, when she was still an executive at her father's company. In that email that she posted on Twitter, she told executives at Trump, why don't you call and negotiate about the price for the Trump inaugural committee. Um, and then the other quote from that letter that she posted is, it should be a fair market rate. So it seems like she has written evidence, documents that show that she is not guilty of trying to get the inaugural committee to overpay for, for this. She has it in writing, right? Okay. She, I mean, it reminds me of when Schwarzenegger was running for governor and he was accused of assaulting women in elevators. And he said, yes, I, would, uh, I, I will be investigating myself on this when I become governor. <laughs> Which, by the way, one, he never did. But two, you don't investigate yourself. So she may have put this down in writing. But that it's a meaningless piece of so-called evidence, although I'm sure Trump world accepted it as a brilliant uh, statement of her innocence. Um, there's nothing that says that she was really uh, negotiating a fair market rate just because she said she was negotiating a fair market rate. Has anyone ever heard of lying? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we all know in the modern digital world, if you say call, 
when you the minute you say use the telephone, that's because you don't want a paper trail. So the whole thing to me, it, it almost sounds like she later added it should be a fair market rate because so, why don't why don't you call and negotiate? Come on. I'm not sure exactly what the crime is here. Wasting money? That's not against the law, is it? The problem with this whole thing is that um, the prices paid to the Trump hotel were excessive and Washington, D.C. law uh, requires nonprofits to, quote, use funds for stated public purposes and to avoid unreasonable, wasteful expenses. Um, so prosecutors are saying that the presidential committee, inaugural committee, willfully used the nonprofit funds uh, to enrich the Trump family. Uh, they broke the law. So ah, that would be a crime. That would be a crime. Well, I mean, it might just be a crime self-dealing to have the presidential inaugural committee spend money at a Trump uh, facility when he's being inaugurated. But then this adds to it, the idea of the nonprofit doing that. So, Information we have about potential federal violations by the Trump kids. What do we know about the crimes of Ivanka that Trump cannot pardon her for? I mean, it's interesting to me because I feel that these crimes are much more serious crimes, the crimes uh, committed in the state of New York. And that is the, well, they're the, all the income tax avoidance schemes undertaken by the Trump organization. But one of those involves these questionable deductions uh, for what are called consulting fees in the documents that were paid to Ivanka and other individuals and businesses. Um, so the Vance investigation is a criminal investigation and the state investigation by Attorney General James is a civil investigation. Um, and uh, the New York Times has said uh, that the two investigations are being conducted independently, but they do overlap. Uh, there are new subpoenas coming down in each of them. And how much money? How much money are we talking about here paid to Ivanka for her consulting? Yeah, for consulting. Um, and it's very weird. Most people who are employed by a company don't consult for that company. That's you work for the company, you don't consult for it. Nonetheless, uh, the um, it's 26 million total in these unexplained consulting fees. But among those 26 million is the not inconsiderable 747,622,000 paid to um, an unidentified individual who seems to be <laughs> Ivanka because it's exactly a match to the income she listed as a consulting fee on the 2017 financial disclosure forms she filed when she joined the White House staff. So your suggestion is that the Trump organization's payment of $748,000 to Ivanka was not correct, not justified, not legal? Not legal. Look, Ivanka's an employee of the Trump Organization at that time, and she's being cons a, a consultant for the Trump Organization. You can't be hired as an outsider when you're already employed as an insider. Um, so somebody's taking a write-off uh, criminally there. So um, the uh, CNN's legal analyst, Ellie Honig, who worked for eight years as an assistant U.S. attorney prosecuting white-collar crimes, he described Ivanka's predicament very bluntly in a November 20th on-air interview. He said, I used to do mafia cases. This is exactly what they would do. If they wanted to take money out of a company and put it in the pocket of an individual, they would say, we'll just call it a consulting fee. That does not make it okay on its own. The question is, did Ivanka Trump actually give consulting services worth $748,000. I mean, think about that. And I would just add, and to her own firm. So this was a big story uh, when it came out. What does Ivanka say about it? Well, Ivanka's Ivanka. So um, she's smart and she understands tactics uh, that she learned on her father's knee. Um, one might say literally. <laughs> She, she tweeted, this is harassment pure and simple. This inquiry by 
NYC Democrats is 100% motivated by politics, publicity, and rage. They know very well that there's nothing here and that there was no tax benefit whatsoever. These politicians are simply ruthless. Now, you said it was smart of her to uh, send out this tweet. Is that is that really good legal advice? Well, I take issue, John. I didn't say it, this was a smart tweet. I said she's a smart person and she okay. is always directing her uh, image projection at people who support her. So that's what this is about. But I do think it's not usually such a great idea, whether you're doing it on television or on social media or in the actual world, if you're a potential suspect, you should not probably directly attack the investigators. <laughs> the better course is to let your lawyers do the talking. But, you know, Trumps don't always let the lawyers do the talking. So it's our duty as responsible journalists to remind our listeners that Ivanka has not been formally accused of committing a crime, nor has her husband or her brothers, nor have any of them uh, officially been named as the target of any investigation. And of course, even if she is eventually indicted, everyone, including Ivanka, is presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But of course, if Ivanka really is facing indictment, there's different ways she could handle this, right? Yeah. I mean, one could argue that she might sit down and think about whether her legal interests and those of her father have diverged to a point where it might be better for her to cooperate with the authorities, fess up, and turn state's evidence. But do we really think Ivanka's going to do that? And then if she's pardoned <laughs> for her federal crime, she might not have to if she has any. But he can't pardon her for the New York things. And the New York people, I think, are going to continue their um, pursuit of these charges because uh, these are real charges. These are real legal charges. This is not a really about politics. It's about, um, it, it may have started because the New York officials began to look into Trump affairs, but I think they had already been looking into the Trump organization even before Trump became president. It was always an organization in semi-trouble with the law. And now they're looking into it very seriously, and I think this will continue on. And if Ivanka turns state evidence, I will seriously lie down and do another children's hour uh, during the Biden administration. <laughs> Amy Willens, our Ivanka Watch reporter. Amy, thank you for today's report. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. John Le Carre died on Saturday. He was 89 and one of the greats, author of two dozen books. People called spy novels, although they were much more than that. More than a dozen of them were made into movies or TV miniseries. For comment on those, we turn to Ella Taylor, our TV critic. Of course, she's a longtime writer for the LA Weekly, the New York Times, NPR.org, and other places. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. I'm very sad about John Le Carre, but very happy to be here. <laughs> well, thank you. When John Le Carre started writing in the early 60s, the spy story and the spy movie meant James Bond. Glamorous, exciting, hooking up with beautiful women and defeating evil like a hero should. And then Le Carre came along with a different kind of hero. And Le Carre didn't buy the prevailing Cold War ideology that portrayed us as the good guys in a worldwide struggle of freedom against tyranny. Our side wasn't so good. It was full of hypocrisy, betrayal, stupidity. The standard for portrayals of Le Carre's most memorable character, George Smiley, 
was set by Alec Guinness in the 1979 BBC miniseries Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's considered by many a landmark in TV history. Let's start with Alec Guinness as George Smiley. He's no Sean Connery. <laughs> no, this is this is true. Um, I recent I was freelancing for the Boston Phoenix when uh, the BBC series came out, and uh, like all alternative weeklies, it was usually very busy at night. But on the on the nights that the TV series first aired in 1979 in the in the states. The, bus, the newspaper became strangely empty, even if people <laughs> were on deadline because everybody had gone home to, to watch uh, the series since there was, um, of course, no streaming at that time. Alec Guinness is simply splendid in this. I had not read any spy or crime novels to, until I started reading Le Carre, and of course I expected the others to be as good, which they're mostly not. He writes the most magnificent dialogue and he also, his character development is very gradual and very complex and deep and, and wonderful. So in many ways, his work is, is best suited to a television series rather than a movie, although there have been some good movies um, of the many made out of his novels. Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, the TV show, um, is one of his best. Even now, I went back uh, in preparation for today and treated myself to a couple of episodes uh, again, and it, it felt like a wonderful reunion. Guinness is really the ultimate Cold War figure. He's doer. He's an organization man. He's incredibly loyal to his feckless bosses, to a fault, as we know from the plot. He's the ultimate Cold War spy and also uh, has absolutely no idea how to live life outside the world of espionage where he's married to the feckless Anne who is constantly screwing up his life by in many it literally by having affairs with uh, many others. Then again, uh, when it came to Tinker Taylor, the movie, she's having an affair with Colin Firth and indeed who would not. So he's absolutely hapless uh, in his personal life, but he's quietly competent and patient in his professional life. And he's also the consummate listener. And since everybody around him is talking in Le Carre's invented spy language about the circus and, and so on, it's part of the fun of them, apparently it's completely made up. He is the only one who uses normal speech very slowly and deliberately, but everyone around him uh, is speaking BS in Le Carre's distinctive uh, spy speak. And uh, Smi George Smiley is the only one who spends most of his time listening and that's how, uh, and watching. That was true of Le Carre also. I mean, he had the most appalling childhood. His mother walked out on the family when he was five years old and he didn't see her again until he was 21. And then I gather only briefly. Uh, and his father was a con man, um, which he elucidated in The Perfect Spy. And if I had a wish, it would be that they would make a movie out of A Perfect Spy because it's a very thinly disguised account of his father's antics as a con man and would-be spy himself. So in a way, he is George Smiley, only much livelier <laughs> because he's writing George Smiley. There's one other thing about Tinker Taylor. The plot is really complicated. The search for the mole inside the circus. Uh, you really have to pay attention and keep track of the clues and the characters. And this is so in this way. Also, it's not like a James Bond movie. Not at all. And I think that, that that's true of all his novels and the people who have made the best movies or TV series out of them have been very attentive to that fact um, that the plots are very serpentine. There's loads of subplots too and subtexts. And that's really the pleasure of reading Le Carre. He's the thinking man and woman's um, spy writer. Uh, and it translates very well in this series, of, of which there is, it takes seven episodes, each of them at least an hour long to uh, get through this. So you have to be patient. But 
you would think that uh, Le Carre would insist on writing the screenplays for television and movies. In fact, quite the reverse. He always uh, took the position that the film was made by the director and the screenwriter. And the only thing that he really, although he was the executive producer on a couple of his films, the only thing that he contributed was the was an endless cameo, of course, in disguise. So the BBC 1979 seven-part miniseries of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spies, definitive work in the history of television. And then it was remade as a film in 2011, which you might think is completely unnecessary and indeed kind of crazy and reckless. And Gary Oldman courageously took up the role, which had been defined by Alec Guinness. What did you think of the Gary Oldman film version of Tinker Taylor? To my astonishment, because I had my hackles up going in um, that nobody could uh, possibly duplicate my beloved TV series, it's extremely good. I would say almost as good as the television series. And I think chiefly for the reason that neither the director, Thomas Alfredson, um, nor uh, Gary Oldman try to repeat Alec Guinness. This is a very different man, still very way-faced and unsmiling. I'm sure that George Smiley was archly named for that reason. It's a very different kind of animal altogether. The plot is very similar, if not downright the same, uh, but the characterizations are different. It certainly picks out more of the humor. The television series had been very attentive to Cold War ambiance. It was very gray. Um, this is in color. Uh, and he has made it very much his own film, which was definitely the way to go because he's a very good uh, director of, of actors as a wonderful cast, including Colin Firth and uh, the very sexy Tom Hardy, who plays the rogue operative here, who all but brings down Western civilization. <laughs> and Gary Oldman is simply splendid. I mean, it's an extremely restrained performance, which I don't think came easily to him at that time in his, his career. And uh, it's highly recommended. I believe it's on Netflix. More than 40 years before that, the spy who came in from the cold, Le Carre's breakthrough novel, was made into a film in 1965, starring Richard Burton. What do you remember about the Richard Burton one? Uh, well, uh, you know, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold was the novel that made uh, John le Carre's career. It, it brought him out of poverty into riches, as he uh, has admitted many times in, in interviews. And uh, the film is extremely faithful to the book. This is not a smiley movie in any sense of the word. <laughs> he plays... Uh, another spy who um, is is um, sent to East Germany to try to get information about colleagues who have been killed or injured. And, uh, Burton is terrific. Uh, it's wonderful in the same way that all those noir films uh, of the period were. It's extremely atmospheric. It doesn't uh, rush through. Uh, the plot by any manner of means. Uh, and uh, it, it was pretty great. It was directed by Martin Ritt, who's a wonderful director that somehow seems to have sunk into obscurity. But uh, I highly recommend it. And I think that you can find it on most of the streaming sites, but you have to pay um, unless you can be clever and um, find it by other means. And after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the end of the Cold War, Many readers felt that Lucare's career was over. He'd lost his great subject. But he wrote another dozen novels, some not so hot, some pretty darn good. And many of those have been made into movies or TV miniseries. Thanks to you, I discovered The Constant Gardener, a film about Africa starring Raph Fiennes and Rachel Weiss that actually won an Academy Award for her part shot in Kenya. Tell us about The Constant Gardener. Well, this is one I wasn't expecting much of. I love the novel. It's directed by Fernando Mireas, who's a Brazilian um, director, and he did an absolutely terrific job. Ray Fiennes is often the kind of sad sack, um, the king of sad sack, but uh, here he's playing a 
a rather constipated uh, but very honest diplomat um, who meets and falls in love with an activist against, um, shall we say, so, so as not to ruin it, U.S. corporations and British corporations who are exploiting um, African locals uh, for profit. It also has a great subordinate role by uh, Bill Nye, who plays uh, a rather corrupt government type. So it really, I think it's really the, the avatar of his second great subject, which was corporate malfeasance and uh, government abuse of power. Uh, so these two meet, fall in love and marry and um, are posted to Africa where Rachel Weiss's character um, creates all sorts of trouble for her poor diplomat husband. She is uh, killed right at the beginning of the movie, so I'm not, given, I'm not giving anything away. And the rest of the movie is told mostly but not all in flashback uh, to see how, how this happened. I think it's one of the most humane films that was made out of a John le Carre uh, movie. The vistas of Africa are gorgeous. Um, the emotional resonance of this difficult but rewarding marriage uh, uh, are very beautifully conveyed by the actors. Um, the plot is very deftly handled, which is always necessary with John le Carre's uh, serpentine plots. And the ending is both will make you cry, but is also incredibly satisfying because there are some people in high places who are brought very, very low. There's a nice performance by uh, Danny Houston um, as the colleague of, uh, of Rafe Fiennes, who, of course, as always with Houston's characters, is up to no good. <laughs> uh, and there are some very fine uh, black actors as well. Uh, one of them in particular as um, as Rachel Weiss's colleague that she's working with to try and uh, get the government off their backs <laughs> and the corporations. So that comes highly uh, recommended. You can see it on Peacock, which is a free service so long as you're willing to put up with the many advertisements. <laughs> Otherwise, you have to pay. Uh, there's a couple of other uh, miniseries. W which which were your favorites of the post Cold War Le Carre stories? Well, I think actually I just started watching the Little Drummer Girl with some hesitation because somebody I can't even remember who made a dreadful movie out of it uh, before. But I do quite like the TV series, which you can see on the Sundance Channel. Again, you know, it being being a TV series, it can stretch out very slowly. It stars the wonderful young actress Florence Pugh um, as a very capable actress who's drafted by. Um, an Israeli uh, agent. Let us say drafted against her will. Against her will, but she really gets into it because she's an actress and also because she's in love with Alexander Skarsgård. It's very much carried by Florence Hughes' marvelous performance as this actress uh, is set amongst the the maelstrom of Middle Eastern politics. And, and Le Carre has not always been, an inter shall we say, a subtle interpreter of that, of that area. But um, here uh, she is drafted in order to infiltrate, to be able to kill uh, a Palestinian terrorist. So uh, that I definitely would recommend. There was also The Night Manager, which perhaps many of our listeners have already seen. I didn't much like the novel of this, and I thought they did a rather good job of, of elevating it. Tom Hiddleston and, uh, plays a hotel night manager and former soldier who is drafted <laughs> to um, infiltrate um, an arms dealer's uh, in a circle. He's drafted by none other than Olivia Coleman, and who, who would not obey her every order? Uh, and there's also a couple of wonderful performances by Hugh Laurie as, um, as the arms dealer and uh, Elizabeth Debicki, who has now uh, got a thriving career coming up um, as the girl for the, the beleaguered girlfriend of the arms dealer. It's very atmospheric and uh, I liked it quite a bit. The night manager in some ways is his closest he ever came to James Bond, and especially in the movie with its glamorous settings, its beautiful women and, and Mr. Evil, uh, the nemesis. Um, so it's kind of a break from the, the, uh, the world of Smiley. 
there is one other break that, uh, and somebody's attempt to to make a, a James Bond movie out of a Le Carre uh, novel, which is The Tailor of Panama. It's directed by John Boorman, who's an absolutely wonderful British director, but he just gets it all wrong here, even with Pierce Brosnan in the lead, and uh, isn't really quite forgettable. So let's forget it. Ella Taylor on the films and miniseries made out of John Le Carre novels. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Completely a pleasure. Thanks. I'm John Wiener. This is Trump Watch. And now we have a special request. We need help in finding a new name for our show. That's because on Wednesday, January 20th at noon, Chief Justice John Roberts will swear in Joe Biden as president, and we won't need to watch Trump anymore. So what should we call our show starting January 20th at noon? Some suggestions so far, a day in the life, naming names, Bidenland, or how about Hey Joe? But you can do better. Send us your ideas to new.trumpwatch at gmail.com. That's new.trumpwatch at gmail.com. Thanks for your help. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.